This is episode two of the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim, and I'm your host. This week, Steve continues his series on the Gospel of John. Don't forget to email your questions or comments to podcast at impactnations.com. from John's Gospel, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And there's a, the reason I want to take you through, over the next couple of weeks, a, a few various chapters, is I, I want to give you some tools for how to go deeper into the Scripture. Um, one of the things that I've become very convinced of is um, that, the, especially the evangelical church, we've become locked into something called the historical critical method, which means, what does it mean? It just means what it means. There aren't multiple layers of meaning. And, and I, I don't believe that, and the historical church uh, unanimously did not believe that for 1,500 years, and now much of it still doesn't believe that. I think there are many, many levels of meaning to the Scripture, and what I want to do is give you a few tools and some some things for starting to recognize how can I go deeper? Because we all know what it's like to read a passage you've read it, you know, 40 times over the years and you're trying to get something new from it. So um, on, on the, this issue of the historical critical method, I actually came across an essay, ironically for me, by uh, a reform group um, who published a, a magazine called The Banner. And Rachel Billings wrote this. It wasn't until I began my graduate studies in Old Testament, though, that I really started to comprehend the significance of the earlier interpreters. Only did uh, uh, then I realized that these brothers and sisters in Christ across the centuries had a lot more in common with me in how they approached the Bible than did my modern, secular, academic peers. Modern methods of reading the Bible text often seek a single meaning that the historical author could have intended. They are designed to seek a historically accurate reading of the Bible as an ancient text. But what these methods couldn't do was guide me toward the goal that had motivated my academic study of the Bible in the first place, namely figuring out how to use the Bible as nourishment for the Christian life in my own time and place. A single ancient meaning embedded in the past just wasn't going to cut it. That was when I began to acknowledge the truth that Christian readers before the modern era had taken it as a given, namely that the Bible contains many, many texts that must have more than one meaning if they're going to mean anything to us. Uh, as theologian David Steinmetz urges, the church today needs to join previous generations in confessing that Scripture has multiple meanings in order to recapture the various levels of significance in the unfolding story of creation and redemption. And all I would say to that is a loud Amen. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to take an episode from the end of chapter 1 of John, Starting, uh, I'm going to read verse 29, and then I'm going to read verse 35 to 51. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We'll jump down to 35. 
Again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you will see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about ten o'clock in the morning. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, uh, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and said, We have found the Messiah, which means anointed one or Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which means rock. The next day, uh, he, dis, uh, he decided to leave for Galilee, and Jesus found Philip and told him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip uh, answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said to him, Here is a true Israelite. No deceit is in him. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus responded to him, do you believe only because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I, I assure you that you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Lord, help us to just unlock some truths that are here. And, and Father, we just acknowledge that there's, there's truths that go deeper than we'll, we'll ever plumb the depths of. But take us further in today. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 29. Look, some of your translations say, others say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What I want you to know as we go through John is that he doesn't waste a word. He doesn't waste a sentence. In fact, at the end of John's Gospel, he's the one who said it. I suppose if everything that Jesus said and did was written, that the, the, uh, the world wouldn't contain the books of it. You've got four Gospels. Three of them are called the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then there's John. John's really interesting. They're all fascinating. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written within the same generation. And they were written to different audience, uh, but they were written uh, in the context of a particular time. John's Gospel was written a whole generation later. And John was writing at a time when there was something called Gnosticism was beginning to rise up, some of the kind of mystery religions were impacting and affecting this early church, John's purpose 
is very, very clear. The beginning of John's Gospel, uh, very famous, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The first 18 verses of chapter 1 are called John's prologue. St. Augustine called them the most sublime words that have ever been written. And they lay out for us in that prologue John's whole purpose, and everything he writes is is undergirding that purpose and leading us to some conclusions. And he is saying, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. So everything that he writes, as we look at just some examples over the next couple of weeks, I want you to remember this. He was incredibly selective. Every gospel writer was selective, right? Otherwise, the the gospels would go on and on and on. And so what he was writing, we always have to look and say, why did he write that? Why did he put it that way? Why did he include this? Why didn't he include that? So with that as a background, let's look at this this episode at the end of chapter 1. So behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb was always incredibly significant in the history and the collective consciousness of the people of Israel. The Lamb was just central to their awareness. Remember, folks, this was an oral, uh, an oral society. 95% of people in first century Israel were illiterate. And there is no reason to believe that there would be any different ratio among the disciples and the various followers. It was an oral tradition. But on the other side, I've just been doing some reading on this in the 2nd and 3rd century, there we would be amazed at their ability to orally speak what they heard with deadly accuracy. Okay? So in that oral tradition, the history of the nation was carried on from, from generation to generation. And the Lamb was at the center, one of the central images uh, for Israel. And I'll give you one of the great examples, goes all the way back to Genesis 22. Remember when Abraham went up Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. This is just embedded into the collective consciousness of Jesus' audience, and frankly, John's audience. A second aspect of the the centrality of the Lamb is the Passover Lamb, or the Paschal Lamb. Every year, Israel celebrated the freedom of the Promised Lamb with a Lamb. Every year. So let's go down to verse uh, 36, where he says again, Behold the Lamb of God. And the Lion of Judah, uh, behold the Lamb of God. The Lion of Judah comes as a lamb. This is something that I I love to teach on. We sing a lot of songs, especially, uh, I think, frankly, especially charismatics. We sing a lot of songs about the Lion of Judah. And, um, uh, And it comes largely from Revelation 5 and 6. Where, where John, uh, Revelation 5, 5 and 6, where John has this incredible revelation we know about, and listen, he says, Behold, there's that word again, 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And it's wonderful for us to sing about the lion of Judah, and again, as I would say, as charismatics especially, but we sing a lot about the lion of Judah. I noticed we did that at, at, at our church on Saturday. So he hears, Behold, the lion of Judah, and then he turns, and what does he see? And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain. This, is, this has got a significance that I'll go into some other time. But it, it's all about, it's about something called canonic love, about self-emptying, that the highest revelation of God is as the Lamb. Okay, let's move on, because again, this is just meant to be kind of a devotional, but I want you to see, what I'm wanting you to begin to get tonight is there are so many phrases and words that as we dig into, the gospel gets deeper and deeper. Uh, verse 38. Um, we have the first words of Jesus in John's gospel. And his first words are a question. He says to the guys who are following him, he says, what are you looking for? Pay attention to the questions that Jesus asks in John's gospel. Just always pay attention because they're very important and they're very strategic. And their response is, Rabbi, where are you staying? That word staying seems such so innocuous, but if we were reading it in the original Greek, the word is meno, M-E-N-O, and it literally means this, to stay, to abide, to dwell, and it is one of the main themes in John he uses the word meno 63 times in this gospel. And when I say it means, it means to stay and to abide, when I emphasize abide, does anybody think of a chapter that jumps out at us? John 15. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. So this is a theme that he will develop. He's introducing it in a, in a simple, almost innocuous way. Where are you staying? Where are you abiding? And he says, come and you will see. Now we can look at that just literally say, oh, he's just saying, well, you'll come and you'll see where I live or where I'm staying. Because the Son of Man had no place to call his own home. But, but it's way more than that. John is introducing themes that are going to get bigger and bigger through this gospel. Come and you will see. Now, from the beginning of this gospel, the invitation to see, to experience what it means to abide is thematic all the way, all the way through this gospel. Our first encounter with Jesus, because remember this is when we first see him, what's he doing? The first encounter is he is inviting. He's saying, come along. You come and see. This is so important, and we have a ton to learn from this, and we'll see these themes begin to develop as we go through the gospel. So then we get to verses 40 and 41, and they come and they stay with him. And then, so, you know, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher. That's a term of respect for a, for a teacher. There was kind of traveling teachers that were known as rabbis. But after one 
Uh, one day, I'm going to read this, verse uh, 40 and 41. The next day, uh, now Philip was from Bethsaida, and uh, he found Nathanael, and he told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. That is, the coming one. Sometimes you'll see that's uh, written, are you the coming one? Um, uh, let's see, uh, Matthew eleven four. are you the coming one? The coming one refers back to Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. It's this great promise. Moses says, before he dies, he says, God's going to raise up one greater than me, like he is the coming one, he is the prophet. And, and so what we see here after just one day, he goes from rabbi to we found the coming one, we found Messiah. And this is what happens when people really encounter Jesus. I'm, I'm not sure it's what happens when they, when they are presented with some doctrine and theological truths, which are good to have. I'm not sure that there's this transformation that takes place, but when they encounter, when they abide, when they see, there's this shift that happens. Uh, and so, he, it's like, he's already opened up his life, and we know what's going to happen. He's going to spend the rest of his life following him. In verse 42, verse 42, um, when... Jesus saw, uh, saw him, saw Peter. He said, you're Simon, son of John, but you'll now be called Cephas, or Cephas, the rock. What's going on here? John is saying, being with Jesus will reveal your true identity. He's saying, if you be with me, you get a whole new identity. Who you thought you were is not who you really are. It's interesting because all the way into Revelation, we're told that we get a new name that, uh, that he gives us. Everyone is looking for who they really are. This is a huge part of the good news. So, so you see how profound this is? If you follow me, if you abide, if you experience... I'm going to show you who you really are. I'm going to give you a new name. One time we were in India. We were out in the countryside. On a Sunday morning, I was just supposed to preach at this country church that was about a half a mile out from a village. And uh, service started. I started to preach. And people just started coming. They were just walking along the road. They were Hindus and Muslims. And they, what's going on? They showed up. So so many of them, we had to move to outside. And they just kept coming and coming. And at the end of uh, at the the end of me preaching, and it wasn't meant to be an evangelistic time, uh, forty of them came to Christ, and we had a bus. And I said to the pastor, "Is there any water near here?" He said, "Yeah." So I taught him a little bit about baptism, and we went to this big old water hole. They had to shoo away water buffalo, and I got in the water. And uh, I'm standing in this mucky water and sinking a little deeper and a little deeper and I can feel things crawling up and down my legs. But I baptized folks for, I don't know, an hour. I guess it was wonderful. 
And they knew nothing. They were not coming from any Judeo-Christian foundation, right? They had just, they had encountered Christ. And, uh, and it's funny, the Spirit of God, several of them just knocked about. I, like if we hadn't dragged them out of the water, maybe they would have drowned, who knows? I suspect not. But as we took them out, as I so often like to do, I had some folks with me from Impact Nations, and they were praying for people. And do you know the Lord prophetically gave, there were 16 of them, of the 40, who chose to be baptized right then and there. And the, the Lord prophetically gave all 16 a new name. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that so? Anyway, I'm going to reveal your true identity. I'm going to give you a new name. Jesus says to Philip the same thing. He says, follow me. This theme of follow me runs all the way through in fact, all the Gospels, it's in the Synoptics too, but it runs through here in John of follow me, follow me, follow me. We get to the very end of John's Gospel, chapter 21, remember when he's made them breakfast and they're, and they're walking along the, the Sea of Galilee, he and Peter, and John's following behind and Jesus restores Peter three times, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, and, uh, and then... Peter turns and says, what about him? And Jesus says, Peter, don't worry about him. But as for you, follow me. It's bookends, folks. He structured this gospel so carefully. And I want you to start to look and see and circle when you see things. And you'll watch patterns show up. And again, I'll tell you, the Bible starts to get thicker. You start to see things that you didn't see before. Um, Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. That's that same sound. He just heard Jesus say that a day before. Come and see. And already he's becoming a disciple, isn't he? Already he's beginning to do what he saw and experienced from Jesus. So what he experienced, he copied from the very beginning we see the disciples learning from Jesus. Okay? Um, and then verse 48 49, I've always got a kick out of this whole passage with Nathaniel. He says, oh, you know, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. In other words, I like your style. I like the fact that you just say what you think. And Nathaniel, what was it he had said? And, and by implication, it wasn't physically there. It was in another spot. He'd said, when he heard about Jesus, he says, oh, forget about it. Can anything good thing come? Right? Remember that? So he says, hey, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, I think you got the wrong guy. We've never met. And he says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And his response, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. A remarkable, remarkable response. So we see somewhat obscurely in the way John has written it, and there is some times of mystery in this gospel, but, but somewhat obscurely we see that there's something out of the ordinary going on here. It doesn't say specifically he was four miles down the road and Jesus wasn't there, but, it, but it, by implication, how do you know me? Oh, I saw you before. So there's something going on here. And then Nathaniel recognizes there's something out of the ordinary going on in his responses, you are the Son of God. Why did John put this episode in here? Because he's challenging us to begin to see 
beyond the obvious, beyond the purely natural. And this theme is going to develop profoundly through John's Gospel, seen with what Paul calls the eyes of the Spirit, okay? And then verse 51, he says this, I assure you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. By the way, I only recently discovered that I'd always pictured him saying it to Nathaniel, but there's these other ones who've been following are standing there too, because he says you, plural. I assure you guys, okay? You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I want to point out a few things from this scripture. One, he's referring to, again, in the oral tradition, every Jew would have known, Genesis 28, Jacob lays down, remember? And some of your Bibles say he has a vision, some say he had a dream, and he sees uh, a ladder and, and angels going up and down, and he says, God is in this place, and I love one translation, he says, and I nearly missed it. And, and that's a whole other teaching, but the sudden awareness. So he's referring back to that. But what I want you to notice is this. He's saying, if you follow me, if you may know, if you abide in me, that you're going to see the connection between heaven and earth. Um, it's the first of 12 times that that John uses this favorite title, Upon the Son of Man. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like when heaven and earth are open to each other. There's this activity, there's this whole other realm. We're back to lift up your eyes and see. Upon the Son of Man. Jesus is the ladder. He is the means. He is the connection between heaven and earth. And as I said, it's the first of 12 times that John uses Jesus' favorite name for himself, the Son of Man. Um, did you know he uses that term of himself 78 times in the Gospels? More than Son of God, more than anything else. Son of Man. And what is significant about this term? Well, it, it's kind of layers of significance, but just for today, by calling himself the Son of Man, he is identifying with those he came to rescue. It's such an incarnational, identificational gospel. Okay? Secondly, the Son of God refers to his divine nature, the Son of Man to his fully human nature. We go all the way back to what I said in the beginning of John's Gospel. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, John 1.14. Um, here's a third thing that I think is so important and layered in this term, the Son of Man. It goes all the way back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel had a powerful, powerful vision, much of which, by the way, you see absolutely reproduced in John's vision in Revelation. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. There's... there's Incredible parallels there. And here is what, um, what Daniel says about this exalted heavenly one. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like a son of man 
coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is the, the table that John is setting right from the beginning of his gospel. It's the, the, this gospel is so rich, you guys. It is so, so rich. Stay tuned for the conclusion of John chapter 1 in just a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by the Isaiah 58 Fund. Every month, Impact Nations partners with faithful servants in Uganda, Kenya, and India to feed the poor. Through a variety of feeding programs, hundreds of beggars, orphans, and homeless are provided with this most basic demonstration of the love of Jesus. Why do we do it? Because we believe that the gospel is to be both preached and demonstrated. Are you looking for a simple way to ensure that the gospel is demonstrated to the poor? Join us with a monthly gift to the Isaiah 58 Fund. You will be rescuing lives. To learn more, visit impactnations.org slash Isaiah 58. And now, back to the podcast. This whole other aspect of, of what he said to Nathaniel and the others, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending. Jesus is the latter. But I think he's also saying that we are called to increase in experiencing this connection, this activity between heaven and earth. We are called, our gospel calls us to experience heaven now. And you know, I believe that some of you who've traveled with me, you know, I believe heaven now comes in so many ways. You know, blind children see and, and, and parallels, people get up and walk and on and on. Heaven now, there's this breakthrough. Um, so, I've just finished this, this first chapter, reviewing. Here's four themes or purposes to the gospel that are all introduced in chapter 1. First of all, the theme of a life of abiding or dwelling, meno, M-E-N-O. The second is the power of invitation. Sometimes we're going to see Jesus inviting in some very surprising ways. Thirdly, Jesus is the connection between heaven and earth. This, by the way, grows and grows through 21 chapters. And fourthly, seeing and perceiving at more than just a natural level. So those are four themes we're going to kind of carry as we go through some more of John's Gospel. Before I go on to the next one, are there any questions? When you shout all at once, I can't make it out. Any any comments or thoughts or questions? Rosalie. Would you go over those last four points you made? They were important. Sure, sure. Go over the last four points. All right. John is introducing several themes, uh, purposes to his gospel. Uh, introducing them in this first chapter. Number one, uh, a life of abiding of dwelling. I gave you the word meno. Secondly, we see the power of inclusion, of invitation. We see Jesus inviting, and almost immediately we see that reproduced in those who have been the invited. Number three, Jesus is the connection between heaven and earth. And this theme just grows and grows. And number four, 
the theme of learning to see, learning to perceive at more than the natural level. Uh, next week, uh, I'm going to look at John 3 with Nicodemus, and you'll see how central that is. But it comes all the way through. Um, John 4.35, lift up your eyes and perceive the word means. Okay? Anybody else? All right. Oh, yes, Jerry. Was he rebuking Nicodemus when he said, you think I'm God because I saw you? Or was oh, it uh, Nathaniel? Into, yeah. yeah was it leading into, no. you're going to see more than this? That's it. He was, I think he was encouraging him. I think he was saying, wow, you figured it out on that little bit of a sign? Wait till you see. Hang around. You are going to see incredible things that you're actually going to see the activity of heaven. Thanks for joining us. Join us again next week when Steve teaches John chapter 2. In the meantime, visit impactnations.org to learn more about how the kingdom of God is transforming lives around the world. And don't forget to email your questions at podcast at impactnations.com.